Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Welcome to episode 58, again, of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, joined as always by Mary, a woman who is desperately looking for a living foul-mouthed teddy bear to drink beer with. <laughs> then, then there's Weeks. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I was wondering if you'd reference that movie, which I finally watched last night for the yeah, first time, Ted. It was such a good movie. Oh, my Talk God. Talk about your spear. Spirit animal, holy moly! That is my spirit animal completely. Wow. <laughs> oh my wow. god! Anyway, anyway, so what's happening? What's good? It's good to be talking just us again. It was a great time we had last yep. week with our friends Bo and Joe, and um, it's back to us. It's kind of like uh, the parents are gone and we get to whole run of the house. Exactly, again. I can drop f bombs again, left, right, and center. I know. I was very proud of how restrained you were. It was so funny. It was watching you go through the. <laughs> not quite be able to get it out so that was pretty good well it's kind of like how i have to be at work at the dq with the kids right you know well you gotta set a good example well, especially i can't be sure. saying like don't make blizzards that way bucker <laughs> i suppose you could <laughs> you know anyways to see we had a great time last week mm-hmm. we talked with joe and Bo from homebrew history as we work on that fundraiser for for the good folks over at BUFT, the Bank of Franklin Trust. So yes. if you haven't donated money yet, why? You still have time. It's a great opportunity to help them put some money away to help save them, preserve their battlefield. Yes. So that is a good thing. That is a good thing. we got a lot of fun stuff planned this week, Mary. Tomorrow night, as we record this on Tuesday, tomorrow night we have our book club, yep. our third book club. Dr. Kate Larson is going to be joining us, talk about her book, Assassin's Accomplice. And we'll definitely talk about that. Hopefully she doesn't leave any details hanging, as they say, Ooh. as we go off to <laughs> talk about that. So that'll be a good time. So, But until then, we are going to stay out west. And we're going to continue our traveling road show in the battle of the areas of around Mississippi. We're going to talk about the second battle of Corinth, mm-hmm. which took place on um, the 3rd and 4th of October, 1862. So it's going to be a fun battle we're going to talk about after we take care of business. Yes. And the business is. Oh, and look at me. I'm going to be the, the polite lady tonight and ask you what you're drinking. Oh, wow. Well, I am drinking from the great Treehouse, the best beer in the planet. It is called September Sun because this is the last end of September and that's the way it's called. And I'm drinking it out of our fantastic uh, uh, mug, Ride with the Winner from John LaRoe, who also married, you may not have known this, but they donated these fantastic Charles Tilden t-shirts. Oh, you mean the Charles Tilden t-shirt I'm wearing right now too? We're both wearing twinsies and a stalker. But anyway, created this t-shirt because of our affinity for Charles Tilden, who are helping to try to get the Medal of Honor for still, believe it or not, that's still ongoing. And um, those, these are available on his page on Red Bubble. Mm -hmm. I said it right this time. Yep. You know, for the children like out red there. Red tube. Um, so <laughs> so go out there the and tube. check them out. He has a lot of cool stuff to sell too. I think he even has an Oliver Otis Howard t-shirt that he made specifically for you. He does. It's and and the cool thing is is you can you don't just have to get this design or the Oliver Otis Howard design or the Ride with the Winter mug design that we both have mugs from him too with the Ride with the Winter on it. You can get it on whatever, like, you know, there's a, I think he said there's 20 some different products that you could get it on. So if you want it on a mug and I think like, like I saw a hat and stuff when I was checking out the, the store earlier. So there's uh-huh. different things that you can get it on. So thank you to him for giving us these t-shirts. They're very, very cool. We are both very much team Tilden. So it's really cool to have a Tilden t-shirt. And we know if you other people that also like Charles Tilden as much as we do. But anyway, getting back to our first segment, I am drinking a beer called Haze Mama from Great Lakes Brewery, which might be uh-huh. close to being the Treehouse of Canada along with Collective Arts, but I won't know until the great beer connoisseur from New England tries them both sometime, wow. that being you. 
Well, we'll have to see about that. I, I have a very snotty palate when it comes to defining libations of Treehouse, Trillium, and the rest of the, the well, great As you know, I do too when it comes to the Canadian breweries. Well, yeah, there's, there's Labatt's, there's Labatt's Blue, there's Molson X. You got all the great beers up there. You, My you days of drinking that are long over, and they were over by the time I was about 18 or 19. Oh, okay. Well, that's great. That is fantastic. Anyways, <laughs> let's talk about Second Corinth a little bit. What do you think? Yeah. You want some fun with that? I think so, yeah. It's part of the Iuka campaign, which began in late summer, early fall of... 1862 mm-hmm. and it consists of I think three different battles and it's a very short mm-hmm. campaign but nonetheless still an important one in the Civil War and at this time um, the one thing to remember is there's so many moving parts as you and I were talking about with this. September you know 17th 1862 you have Lee being defeated at the Battle of Antietam. Prior to that you have Second Manassas and South Mountain which lead into Antietam but then in the Western Theater you also have Braxton Bragg he's getting to move into Kentucky so you have the Battle of Richmond as well that is Happened. All these things go- going on following that Battle of Shiloh, even going back that far. Yep. This is, you know, after Shiloh, uh, Pierre, Gustave Toutant, Beauregard, Beauregard, Beauregard. Like to call him around here. Yep. Beauregard, if you're nasty. Um, <laughs> he is going to retreat from Shiloh and he's going to head right to Corinth. Corinth in Mississippi is a town, Northeast Mississippi. It's just below that Tennessee border. It's a very strategic and important place for a million different reasons. The most important reason is it is a major junction of two vital railroads, the Mobile and Mobile and Ohio Railroad, as well as the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. Confederate, uh, Confederate Secretary of War Leroy Pulp Walker called Corinth the vertebrae of the South, Mary. That's what he called it. Yeah. Is because it was a very important railway. So you had a bunch of situation where Beauregard's army is down there after Shiloh. And we're going to go real quick, just to kind of set this up. We're going to go back a little bit. We're going to turn back time in the share mobile real quick here. If I could turn just, back time. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> May 1862, there's the Siege of Corinth we talked about. This is the Union trying to get the Confederates out of there mm-hmm. for that reason, because of strategic railways. Union Major General Henry Halleck, Mary of all people. How about that? Department of Mississippi. The Mississippi, that's where he is. At that time, he was in personal command of that army because if wow, you remember- Wow, he actually did he, war things instead of desk things? Well, he because he was pissed at old U.S. Grant for getting all that blood spilled at Shiloh, remember? So yep. he went in there and he was taking control of that. He's got twice as many guys as Beauregard. He's got 120,000 dudes versus 60,000. So that's an easy math way even for you to figure that one out. We'll not talk about okay. math after the debacle tonight with trying to get that tweet posted when I messed up the oh. greater than sign. Once, twice, three times, try and hey. tweet. You know? <laughs> but Halleck, before, he sieges Beauregard. What Beauregard has to do is he has to retreat in the face of the enemy, which is the hardest thing you can probably do. He pulls out the old Quaker logs and kind of sneaks away yeah. uh, on May 29th, May 30th, right around there of 1862. He's able to retreat and it pisses off Jefferson Davis because to the point where he just kind of loses confidence in him and that, that's kind of what happens. Yeah. During the siege, Halleck is going to create a series of defenses that are going to become important to what we're going to talk about here in a little while. What happened was it slowed the Union Army to get down there, but he was building these, these really strong fortifications. And they were very, very well built. He wanted to protect the supplies that were around these or this railroad track. Mm-hmm. They created this thing called the Halleck Line, which is a really strong defensive line, which is near a bunch of artillery batteries at a place called College Hill. Battery Williams, uh, Phillips, Lothrop, Tanrith, and Robinette, as well as Powell and Madison. We'll talk about the first, the, a couple of them more importantly later on. They were all very well defensive with defensive with those abatis. They were very tough to get through and get around. And it's going to be important later on. You know, what Halleck does is he 
he's going to defend that area with about 23,000 guys. That's what he's got. By late summer of 1862, right around that time when the Indians probably get eliminated from the playoffs in that year, right around August, you know, okay. right around there. Jesus. I know. Hey, but the your socks ain't doing so good. Hey, world champs, I'm telling you, you'll see. <laughs> Around this time, you kind of hinted it with Bragg and those guys. The Confederates are trying to drive it in the north because they just want to kind of get in there and get the war out of the south a little bit. The, that campaign, the Yucca campaign you mentioned, is going to fail. It's going to fall right in its face. And it's going to ultimately leave the door open for, for Grant to get to Vicksburg. Mm-hmm. So September 1862, Major General Sterling Price, remember him, Mary, he'd been fighting that Missouri situation, the, the state militia. He is now in charge of the Army of the West, and he is going to march into Iuka, Mississippi on the 14th of September. It's about 25 or 30 miles southeast of Corinth, uh, Mississippi. This is where the kind of orders kind of move around. There's a lot of moving parts to your point. He was ordered by his boss. Braxton Bragg, Mary, who I don't know if you know this, but an anniversary of his death was yesterday. It was, yes. I it saw was. That. So, he, so yep. the day came and he still still died. War Braxton. And Braxton Bragg was in the midst of that driving into Kentucky, which you were kind of alluding to. They want to stop the troops of the Army of the Mississippi under William Rosecrans. Mm-hmm. So Rosecrans now is in charge of his army. What Price wants to do is he doesn't want Rosecrans from moving into Middle Tennessee. And to reinforce he, Nashville. He does right. James Negley's divisions in Nashville, they're afraid that that's from the Army of the Ohio. They're afraid they're going to get the whole band together and create this really strong army. Price, he's got 14,000 guys. He's going to have to defend this. Now, he knows he doesn't have a lot of guys, but what he does have in his back pocket, Mary, he has a lifeline. He can still phone a friend. Exactly. Okay. And his friend is sitting in Holly Springs, Mississippi. And guess who that friend is? Earl Van Dorn. It's Earl Van Dorn. Oh, look at him from the district, the district of the Mississippi. So little EVD. A little EVD. Sounds like something you're going to pick up at the Bang Barn. Probably is a little penicillin with the Lee P. Hill, you know. <laughs> um, so they have the ability to gather a pretty strong army. When they combine, they're going to be about twenty-two thousand guys. Yeah. On the Union side, U.S. Grant in the Army of the Tennessee. What he was afraid of was Sterling Price going north to join Bragg because mm-hmm. Bragg was up there fighting Don Carlos Buell. Yeah. So they're both kind of afraid of the of these other guys going and connecting and strengthening up to fight. Well, it's because they've got a, you know, like not, you know, Kentucky is a border state, as we discussed in our episode about Richmond, you know, and it's very important that Lincoln hold on to that for that reason. And we talked about how divided that state actually is, you know, between slaveholders and non-slaveholders. But then you have Nashville, which is really important for the Confederacy. And I'm sure they would, you know, like it back. And it's like, they're so afraid that they're going to go reinforce it. So they're after kind of these two, like this one state and this one city are what they're, both sides are kind of vying over right now. Yeah. And so what, what Grant wants to do is he, you know, he wants to get, he wants to make a plan. So he's going to have, he's going to make a plan for his left wing um, under General Edward Ord. We haven't spent a lot, a lot of time talking about Ord. He'll get his no. day. It's not going to be today, but we'll, he'll have his yep. day. Okay. Also, he's going to have him advance to Ayuka. That's what he wants to do. Yep. On the other side of the other wing is Rosecrans. And he's going to be doing the same thing there, but he's going to be late. He's going to be slow. Okay. Yeah, Grant realizes that he's not going to have time to get there to link up with Ord by yeah, the, uh, they, by the 19th. The 19th is the day they're going to fight. They're going to get meet on the 18th. They're going to do a big huddle. They're going to high five, leave the, you know, and then they're going to fight on the 19th. That's mm-hmm. your plan. But it ends up getting delayed. And this is going to lead to the Battle of Ayuka. And we're just going to kind of real briefly hit it real quick. We'll do it more details later on with this. But it's important to set up, especially the post Ayuka battle issues that are going to come with Rosecrans and Grant that are kind of come out. Yeah. So Rosecrans with Ord is going to go stop Sterling Price, right? The battle finally gets started. Rosecrans is going to attack. It's just like a Friday night. 
he finds himself all by himself. No <laughs> one's answering, right? So what's going on? Even after the 25 battle, times? 25 times. 25 times. <laughs> and what happens is there's an acoustic shadow that takes place. The damn acoustic so because, shadow. Because the undulations and all the stuff that's going on, uh, Ord <laughs> doesn't hear the battle. So he sits around doing nothing. He's mm-hmm. probably doing some whittling. Grant also doesn't hear it. So it's kind of like, well, that's probably why Ord doesn't get court martials because he's like, I didn't hear it either. So they yep. didn't hear the battle happening. Still, Mary Rosecrans is able to drive Price out of Ayuka. He's able to push him out. Price is going to escape down that Fulton Road. He's going to go. Vacate the dance floor is, pretty hard. He's going to vacate the dance floor, and he is going to ultimately hook up with Van Dorn. Well, that doesn't sound right. He, he meets up with Van <laughs> That's Dorn, not shocking. That's Savannah Bactor. Price and Van Dorn are hooking up at the Bang Barn. What kind of Civil War story? Are we getting into Civil War Breakfast Club after dark with that? We're in a Peter situation here. We'll leave that alone. little EVD. He is going to meet up with Earl Van Dorn, and they're going to combine their forces under Van Dorn's control because he's got he's got seniority, so he's going to have it. This is going to lead to a little pissing match between with William Rosecrans and U.S. Grant, where allegedly somebody, we don't know who it was, but it probably rhymes with Fosecrans, okay, <laughs> goes to a Cincinnati newspaper and says, well, I had to fight by myself because I'm pretty sure that um, U.S. Grant was thrown back, you know, Grandpa's old cough medicine. Grant was he into was, the hooch. Was, you know. <laughs> anyway, okay. I'll just edit might, that you might want an urban dictionary that one. <laughs> by the way, okay. It ends up being a big political thing that's going to come out later on. So at this point, they're really not going to get along anymore yeah. after this. This is really kind of what it is. You go to the newspaper and you bash your, your boss. It doesn't usually end, end too well for you. Within a couple of days, Van Dorn's army, now with Price, they are on the march yeah. from northwest of Corinth with about 22,000 guys on this army of West Tennessee. And But the thing, too, with this is that the newspapers do praise Rosecrans after this, even though he doesn't go after Price. That's kind of foreshadowing what happens to him. This is not going to be the first time Rosecrans does this. But yeah, as you said, uh, there's talk of rumors of Grant's drinking. We don't know who started it. But as will be seen, we'll talk about this in the aftermath. You can see that Grant is pretty pissed off about this. Price is going to advance towards, start advancing towards Corinth. and he. But before he gets there, he is going to hook up. With Van Dorn there, I said it. Just the number of troops that are here before we get started on this. There's 45,000 troops between the two armies, 23,000 Union and 2,200 Confederate. And they're, so they're pretty evenly matched at this. As we said, Union's commanded by General William Rosecrans, and the Confederates are commanded by Earl Van Dorn. When what happens when he and Price link up is they are going to... So Earl Van Dorn has the Army of West Tennessee, and Price has the Army of the West. Well, they're just going to become the Army of West Tennessee for this whole battle. They are going to march towards Corinth with the hope of recapturing it for the Confederacy, since it's been ta- it was taken by the Union again back in the spring, as we talked about. And the Union Army has been so focused on Bragg's invasion of Kentucky that they are pretty spread out all over the place because of that. So therefore, Grant's command is scattered throughout Tennessee. Oh, another interesting thing too. Earl Van Dorn and Rosecrans were both part of the same class at West Point in 1842, except one of them, Rosecrans, graduated near the top and the other graduated at the very bottom. Yep, that's pretty pretty sad right there. And Goddard High School, unfortunately, the three the reality. In any case, so the thing about about um, about Rosecrans, I mean, uh, from Van Dorn though, is the way he's going to march towards yeah. Corinth. He's going to kind of cut off Rosecrans. 
from any sort yeah. of reinforcements. He's going to come down the, the primary road. He's going to set up just outside of Corinth. He's going to price his two-division army on the left-hand side. He's going to have, on the right-hand side, the Department of the Mississippi, Mar uh, Mansfield, Lavelle. So he's going to have he's going to have a pretty good size army, to your point. Corinth has been fortified thanks to those Halleck line we talked about yep. um, with all those artillery batteries, which are pretty formidable. So you've got a strong artillery battery situation as well as 22,000, 23,000 guys is all in that area. So even though they're kind of spread throughout Tennessee, that little area, they got a pretty strong, little strong little yep. concentration. Now, real quick, real quick, Rosie, old Rosie, we got to talk about him. Yep. Another Ohio guy, Mary. i talk about him, right? He does go to West Point with Van Dorn to your point. Also, you know, also goes to school with two is after Doubleday, yep. right on the baseball team with them. Yep. And also James Longstreet. Mm -hmm. So he has got some friends in the war. So Rosecrans is going to learn of Van Dorn coming down that road, advancing from the northwest. So he's going to set up his, his defensive position to be ready for them. He's going to put a skirmish line up near Beauregard's old rifle pits yep. and those entrenchments. He wants to attack the rebels. So right when they hit that Halleck line, and the reason why is it gives them the ability to fall back right into that college hill where the artillery is if they have to. Yep. So it's really a, a strong two-smack attack is what it really comes down to. Now, so 10-3, 1862, around 10 o'clock in the morning, you have Thomas McKeon, the 6th Division on the left, with Charles Hamilton, the 3rd Division on the right, with David Stanley, 2nd Division in reserve. And the thing with this is like Earl Van Dorn, the night before, on October 2nd, he had sketched out when they were camping at Chihuahua, which sounds kind of like Chewbacca for some reason. That's what I thought of. They're camping at Chihuahua that night. So he sketches out how he wants his army to move the next day. And apparently he was as good at art as I was because his command division commanders really don't have a clear idea of exactly what he wants to do. He set sent his cavalry to strike the railway, but he'd failed at that too because Grant had made the had made the train come to Jackson, Mississippi the day before, as Grant had already anticipated that the Confederates were going to try and seize that rail line. So there's Grant's forethinking right there with that. But you see, so you have EVD and his men going into this battle on October the 3rd, him having sketched a shitty drawing on a map, because I'm assuming it was that bad if his commanders can't figure out exactly what he wants to do. That's what they're going into this battle with. I wonder um, if he sticks his tongue out when he draws too. Weird. He totally does. I'm sure he does. That's exactly what I did in art class. Yeah, that's why I was, didn't take art class for very long in, in high school, actually. But another thing to mention here, and this is something that I couldn't find a lot on and I wish I could have. One reason that Grant knew a little bit of what EVD wanted to do and where he was going is because he managed to intercept one of EVD's spies. And one of Earl Van Dorn's spies was a woman named Amelia Burton. The message that she has for Earl Van Dorn gets intercepted because of this like she had said in this message to Earl Van Dorn that Rosecrans in his fortifications at Corinth that they were weakest on the northwest side of the town. Rosecrans finds out this is what's getting sent to Earl Van Dorn. So he is able to improve the town defenses in that area. Now, the thing about Amelia Burton is I found this information on American Battlefield Trust website about her. That's where I found her name. And I went and Googled her and she is literally one of these faceless women. We just know her name. There's not much more about her. Um, it made me think of the class that we're taking with Lisa Samia. She's nameless on faces. Probably yep. says Sheridan on her gravestone. Just that one word. So, <laughs> you know, so what Van Dorn wants to do is he wants to probe the union lines mm -hmm. and he's going to test them out for looking for a weak point. So he's got yep. a plan of what he wants to do. 
and he wants to create what's called the double envelopment. Yeah. Okay. So what he wants to do is, is basically what it is, is have two simultaneous flanking attacks hitting at the same time. Yeah. It's also called pincer, right? To encircle the line and kind of get behind it. And this is how the initial attack is going to go. If you remember, if you remember, Mary, we saw them. We free stated Jones, right? Yep. The opening battle scene was this scene. It was. Yeah. And the beginning of Corinth, okay? With Matthew McConaughey, right, right, right. Yeah. You know, going right, across right, right. the battlefield. And he you know, drove he away in a Lincoln. He did. But, you know, Newt Knight, he was part of the 7th Mississippi of this battle, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Not to spoil the ending, but the rebels lose this battle, just so you know, okay? When they're retreating, he goes AWOL. The Confederates catch him put him in jail. They Not only that, they arrest him for desertion. They burn his entire house down. Yeah. So that that's so he, they didn't, he didn't like that too much. And we're studying New Night, you know, it goes on after that. But it's just interesting. He was there in that, that beginning scene. You've seen that movie, that really brutal battle scene yep. at the very beginning. It's the beginning of the Battle of Second Corps. It's just a little pop culture. Yeah. That's what that was. Pop culture. You know, pop culture. Mm -hmm. so, so Van Dorn, he wants to attack McKean on the left, really from three sides, yeah. what he kind of wants to do. Because what he wants to do is he hopes if he hits McKean, the Rosecrans is going to have to move men from the right under Hamilton over to the left to strengthen that position, yeah. thus creating a weak spot for Sterling Price to burst through. That's kind of what he wants to do. And this is when General John MacArthur is going to get involved. Yep, who we've seen at Missionary Ridge as well. He gets involved in that. And there's a gap that ends up occurring between Davies and MacArthur. MacArthur been in reserve, okay, and he yep. gets called up to move up to help move McKean. And by him moving up, he does create that gap on the Union line between McKean and Thomas Davies' second division, Illinois, Iowa, and Ohio yep. guys for the most part. And they're gonna the Rebs are gonna drive that gap. Yep, and they go through the gap just it very, it's not, it seemed very similar, maybe on a smaller scale to what is going to happen at Chickamauga with Longstreet on September the 20th, where there's that gap in the line, and they're able to drive right through. And what happens is the Union Army falls back within half a mile of the redoubt, and they leave behind two pieces of artillery as well while they're at it. General Oglesby, the future governor of Illinois, is going to be wounded here. But then at 3 p.m., you have Hamilton who, no word if he's related to the Alexander Hamilton, but anyway. That's why he could sing. Yeah, you don't want me. I just thought of singing one of those songs, but I won't. I'll spare our listeners because they already got to hear my rendition of If I Could Turn Back Times. Hamilton receives the order from Rosecrans to attack, and he has his division pivot to the left. And I'm picturing that scene from Friends where they're, you know the scene where they're carrying the couch and they're like, pivot, pivot, pivot? That's all I thought about. You don't know that scene. One of the death that happens at this battle before you get too far is one of my favorite Civil War names, Mary, is going to fall here. And that is Brigadier General Pleasant Hackleman, who sounds like a wonderful person. But he yeah, does. Fortunately, he's mortally wounded. He's in charge of the 1st Brigade under Davies, yep. Illinois, Iowa, people like that. And he falls. And his, his name was Pleasant. So, well, he didn't have a pleasant day. Hamilton is starting to um, start fumbling his attack worse than what the Patriots did in that first game they played. <laughs> What? Let it go. <laughs> General Napoleon Buford's brigade is going to get delayed because they run into some Confederates. Interesting story about General Napoleon Buford. He is John Buford's half-brother, and mm -hmm. he had graduated in the top uh, seven of his class at West Point. And he actually might have been one of the reasons why John Buford, you know, near this time in 1862, John Buford starts getting a little bit of a promotion. And that's why we eventually see him where we do at the Battle of Gettysburg. And it could have had something to do with his stepbrother, Napoleon. Napoleon had seen a lot of success and Buford really admired him. And they say he's one of the reasons why he went to West Point. But Hamilton uh, just has one field, one battery on the field, and he's got one small 
brigade and they end up not really attacking at all. And because Hamilton doesn't get into place, this is why the battle's going to go on for one more day. Because he can't get his shit together. Well, the problem is, is he's going to get there late. In order to attack that rebel left flank, right? And so by the time he gets in position, it's almost dark by the time his division yeah, gets Yeah, well, there. it's so not till 3 o'clock he's ordered, right? And by this time of the year, right, it's so, getting dark. So the communication issues, the plane gets off late. And the sad part about it is if... You're right. It does go to a second day because if he could have attacked maybe even at two hours earlier, maybe one hour earlier, there's a real good chance they could have driven Vendor right there. They could have plowed him right off. Exactly. Um, don't forget Jeremiah Sullivan, too, though, Mary. You mentioned Napoleon's Buford. He was there, too. Yep. But they could have easily pushed them back. Well, I say easily, but theoretically, they could have. By the end of that first day, the battle for Rosecrans is a complete and utter disaster. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a mess, kind of like a broken blizzard machine at the DQ. It's a, <laughs> Complete and utter disaster. That is the right? worst. We gotta, you know, we've spoken very highly of Rosecrans in the past, yep. Mary. We really, really have Stones River specifically, but we we can't really do that with this one. No, we, we, this we, one here, he's been yeah. driven back. What is it like a, about half a mile? Mile, you know, he's not where he should be, and and the Confederates really at the end of the day are, are holding the advantage. Earl Van Dorn later said. One more hour of daylight and victory would have soothed our grief for the loss of the gallant dead who sleep on that lost but not dishonored field. Earl Van Dorn is looking at it as like if we'd had more daylight. So Earl Van Dorn is using the daylight as an excuse for not carrying on. But really what it probably was was the heat that day. It was 94 degrees in early October, which is probably very rare for that time of year. Um, and also, there wasn't a lot of water available for the troops, and they were exhausted because, keep in mind, they've been marching for a really, really quite a few days at this point. So Earl Van Dorn seems to think that he could have held the field. But really, he is in a great position. There is a good chance he probably thinks that the next day, oh, shit, I've got this. I can take it. But the thing is, is Rosecrans is going to reinforce his lines for October the 4th. He's, he's going to have to, and we'll talk about that. But just that... Rosecrans is going to be sitting in his tent on the night of the third wearing his, you know, his Yogi Bear feety pajamas sitting there, <laughs> right? And just thinking all the mistakes he made because he didn't coordinate his attacks at all. You had, for the most part, every one of his division commanders that he had kind of doing their own thing. They were all kind of independent contractors. And they had, they had to yep. be their own field general at the time. Yet he does reinforce the army. He puts them into that two-mile arch that kind of goes all the way over the north of the battlefield. The next morning on the fourth around four o'clock in the morning the rebel artillery is going to start firing boom 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 yeah and it's going to go for a couple of hours until around nine o'clock in the morning when the rebels are going to finally make their move and so but the union troops are going to prepare themselves for that attack and so what happens is so this artillery bombardment has started at 4 30 in the morning at 7 a.m Hebert, who is told by Earl Van Dorn to attack, and he was to begin the engagement at daylight, and the artillery bombardment was meant to allow him to get into position. Well, at 7 a.m., Hebert tells Earl Van Dorn, I'm too sick, I can't, so who knows, maybe he was into the uh, the whiskey the night before or something, and that was his little sickness that he had or whatever, but who knows, whatever was going on with him, he's not able to attack. Three words, so- Corinth Taco Bell. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> Always go to the DQ if you have the choice, not Taco Bell. Exactly. Um, exactly. So Green, uh, General Martiny e. Green is going to replace Hebert, and Green does not attack until two hours later. So again, you see this delay happening. 
So Green takes his four brigades in echelon, occupies a position in the woods that is north of town, and he forms a line facing the south. He's going to charge Battery Powell with Gates, McLean, Moore, and Colbert, and he is going to attack Hamilton's line. So Hamilton is going to be attacked. His assault is going to be successful, and he's going to scatter the troops from Illinois and Iowa. They're going to be going straight on. They're going to go right at him. We talk about yep. the strength of these batteries. Yeah. So Powell's the one that gets hit. General Dabney Coleman, Price's second division commander, is going to be the next one who's kind of get involved in it, right? So he's going to drive his division towards the town of Corinth. Yeah. And this is where most of his battle takes place on this fourth, is in front of, in front of Henry Rabinet's battery. Three 20-pound parrot guns in front of a five-foot ditch. No thank you. And this is going to be called a battery Robin S, right? So the troops are going to, this is going to be really hardcore hand-to-hand combat. It's the That's worst in the battle. Right. Now, this is one of the most famous stories about the Second Battle of Corinth as a, as a guy named Colonel William Rogers, okay? Mm-hmm. This is from the Second Texas, and it's a bit—it's—it's it's, it's one of the more famous stories. Anybody who's been down there or studies this battle, so he led the third and final attack on Battery Robinette. Now, before the battle, he pinned a note on his chest with his name, his age, his home address, and his email address in case he fell. That's what he was going to do, right? Because he, I mean, that's well, he felt that I mean, he thought this could be his day. Was it a premonition? Who knows, right? He's going to leave that second Texas, but not just the second Texas, because he's, he's going to have to act as a brigade commander here. Mm-hmm. He's also going to leave the sixth and the ninth Texas, as well as the 35th Mississippi yeah. and the 42nd Alabama. And they're all going to assault this battery Robinette. They're going to get within 400 yards of the battery. And they're going to be, get to a wood line. And at the wood line, he's going to put these, this brigade into four columns. Because they're in lineup and column, all the Union guys are going to say, hey, look at those guys. They're going to call the attention upon themselves from the battery. Yeah. The men YOLO it and charge the battery. They get through the abatis and they're into, they're into the really right into the guns at this point, into the actual artillery, this vicious musket fire. There are four collar bearers that fall, and Colonel Rogers at this point, like we see so many of these these generals do, is going to grab the colors. He's going to j- jump on his horseback with it, and he's going to be riding around waving the flag from his horseback. And so he's going to lead the troops while on horseback carrying this flag, this Texan. He's going to get to that five-foot ditch in front of that battery, right? Yeah. And Rogers is going to jump off his horse. He's going to jump over the ditch. And he's going to plant the colors at the battery. He's going to stick stick them right in the ground. You know, claim the guns, the you know, the name of the Confederacy. Thirteen of the thirty six Union men at the battle, right at the guns, are going to be killed right here. So this is again that hand to hand combat. Yeah. Rogers, for a short time, seizes Battery Robinette. He has he's in the guns. He has control of it. But a huge Union counterforce is going to come towards them and is going to counterattack and is going to drive them back. Rogers is going to try to surrender by waving his handkerchief. He sees us and goes, nope. He's going to wave his handkerchief, but the troops don't see him waving the handkerchief. Yeah. So they're going to unload canister. He's going to be hit 11 times with canister fire all at the same time. So I don't want to spoil it, but he didn't make it, right? No. So an Iowa soldier, Union Iowa soldier on Battery Robinette says, General Rogers with a flag in one hand and a revolver in the other led them straight into one of the most awful death traps in the entire war, he says. So you just imagine this, right? You know, soon afterwards, Van Dorn, before he quits, it just it goes to show the tenacity of some of these guys. We talked a lot about Union guys. We talked yeah. about guys like Isaac Stevens, and we talked about Chantilly, yeah. about this valor. So we don't always get a chance to talk about the Confederates, but this is a case with Rogers. We'll talk more about him in a few minutes, about how uh, 
the effort he did against that battery. So it's a pretty it's a pretty cool story when you study it. It's very, very interesting. And there's fighting that is gonna happen in the town too. And the Confederates are well within range of the Union batteries. Uh-huh. And for instance, Lovell is in the vicinity of the Union battery Phillips and he prepares to advance. Then the reserves come in around one o'clock, they vacate the dance floor. Earl Van Dorn starts to leave. The battle is over almost as now it started at like 430 in the morning. But then you have to consider, you know, Green is 7am. He's two hours later getting started because of he bear being sick. So 9am by one o'clock, it's all over. It's a relatively short battle when you think about it. But, you know, very, very fierce fighting that is being seen at the battery Robinette, this hand to hand combat, which is some of, you know, probably the heaviest fighting in this this whole battle is there. But it's interesting that as Earl Van Dorn is retreating around one o'clock, all of a sudden Rosecrans appears riding his lines. And this is because it's been rumored that Rosecrans has been killed and the troops are starting to get a little bit worried. So what do you do when it's rumored you've been killed? And we've seen this in other battles before. We've even seen it with generals who haven't been rumored to have been killed. You have Beauregard at Shiloh doing it, out riding the lines to kind of rally the men. Well, Rosecrans, you know, because it's been rumored he's been killed, he's gotten to make an appearance, right? So he comes on the battlefield and he's riding up and down the lines and he says, I stand in the presence of brave men and take my hat off to you. And this is all as as Earl Van Dorn is starting to vacate Mm -hmm. the dance floor. He's going to go, we'll talk about the the final part of the battle. I just want to finish up this Texan story. Yeah. Because I know know, because with this. So it's amazing when you think about the numbers of some of these two, because this is one of those regiments who really, really takes it hard. So... Mm -hmm. 324 of the second Texas who entered the, that attack, only 124 present afterwards. Wow. Now, these are guys who rushed a battery that was surrounded by a ditch with musketry around it. Just goes how, how it was. So Roger's bravery, to go back to him again, and that second Texan bravery, it drew all kinds of accolades all around the country, including from the north. Yeah. Rosecrans himself, before he, you know, he had to show everybody he was alive again, he actually ordered Roger's body to be buried with full military honors at Battery Robinette. He, he personally supervised that. There's a monument there now that was unveiled in 1912, right at Corinth. And on the monument for William Rogers, it's, it says, he was one of the bravest men that ever led a charge, bury him with military honors, William Rosecrans. So he has a quote, a Union Major General's quote, the Army of the Cumberland Commander quote on a that's Confederate cool. monument, which I always thought was pretty, I always no, thought- That's, that's really cool, day. that's really you know, cool. You know, pretty, pretty cool story. But, but Rosecrans, to your point, he caused himself some valuable time by doing what he did there because yeah. Van Dorn is, is going, he's taken off. Yeah, he's he's all he's all looking for Miss Peters. He's out the door. He's yep. gone. Right? He's gone to the bang barn. He, he certainly is. He certainly is. And so he had there was an opportunity there realistically. And this is where Grant is probably a little bit unfair, right? A little, yeah. So so Grant, you know, he has in his quotes, he he was pissed off that he let he let him go. Yeah, that uh, that he, he was able to get back. But he was also pissed at Rosecrans since Ayuka, and he was. So exactly. he was looking for an, ex, for an excuse. So. He didn't pursue Van Dorn until 10-4. So on 10-3, he, he, there was an opportunity. So Grant says, two or three hours of pursuit on the day of the battle without anything except the men, what the men carried on their persons would have been worth more than any pursuit commenced the next day could have possibly been. Yep. Basically saying F you is what that really, really was. Exactly. And, but you know what's funny about this? What happens to Rosecrans as soon as this battle ends? Guess what he is? 
He's a hero. He is. He's a complete hero. Before we get to that, just to kind of wrap up Battle of Corinth. So the total casualties are 7,197, 2,359 are Union, and 4,838 are Confederate. Just to get into what Rosecrans does, what happens on October the 5th, when he finally does decide to start a bit of a pursue, pursue of Earl Van Dorn, General Ord makes an appearance again. He's been making his way to reinforce Rosecrans at Corinth. The night of October the 4th, he's camped near Pocahontas, Tennessee. A division of Illinois and Indiana regiments under the command of General Stephen A. Hurlbut discovered Confederates in their front. This is Earl Van Dorn and Price retreating. So Ord takes command of this, and he starts to push Earl Van Dorn's advance of um, Price's army back five miles to Hatchie River and across the Davis Bridge. During the fight, Ord is wounded and Hurlbut has to assume command. As the fighting is happening, some of Earl Van Dorn's scouts find another crossing and it's south at a place called Crumbs Mill. From here, Earl Van Dorn is going to lead his army back. So while Car- Battle of Corinth and the battle, as well as you can say the Battle of Davis Bridge, although it's a small one, are both Union victories. But this is not what Grant wanted. Grant wanted Rosecrans to get Earl Van Dorn and completely crush him so that he can't go back. He doesn't want him to go back. And as you said, Grant is just pissed because he could have, the soldiers could have just taken what they had the, on the 4th and, you know, Grant saying they could have caught Earl Van Dorn. And I do, like, personally, I think that's a little bit unfair because it's like these men have been fighting in the heat for two days and Grant's just expecting them to, like, haul ass and, and, and go after Van Dorn's army. Now, Rosecrans made his own errors, well, then, too. That was, that was, I mean, Rosecrans in the Northern Press was a hero for this battle. Exactly, right? he was. He was promoted. And, and th- what that was by Grant, that was throwing cold water on that is what that was. There's no yeah, question. Exactly. Was. He was you trying. Know, he, he's, he's and you, you see Grant do this to Rosecrans again at Stones River with saying that it wasn't a victory. So this is kind of a pattern with these two and I think when you're looking at the relationship to between Grant and Rosecrans and just all the kind of it, it seems pretty dramatic like it seems it's almost like mean girls reminds me of some of the shit I went through in high school actually um it goes back to Iuka with these rumors about drinking. What happened is when Rosecrans started going after Van Dorn on the 5th to try and hook up with Ord where he was, apparently he went the wrong way. And Grant says in his memoirs that he went on the wrong road. And then he said, even when he did start, if Rosecrans had followed the route taken by the enemy, he would have come up upon Van Dorn in a swamp with a stream in front and Ord holding the only bridge. But Rosecrans took the road leading north and towards Chihuahua instead of west. So, ha, there we go. He went the wrong way. It's interesting, the relationship between the two of them. I get the criticism on both sides, but I think Grant might be a little bit harsh towards Rosecrans considering the hard fighting the troops go through at Battle of Corinth. Well, when you see these later battles, these guys are involved in together, Vicksburg yeah. and Chattanooga. You, you can see where the foundation's laid for this and why it is. But, but the ironic thing about it is he does get promoted. He replaces Don Carlos Buell as the Army of the Ohio, he which becomes the Army of the Cumberland. So he does yeah. get promoted. Van Dorn, on the other hand, Mary, not so much. Mm. He's going to get his ass fired. Yeah. So he's going to get fired and replaced by John C. Pemberton due to the loss of all that slaughter at Corinth. So he's going to yep. get bumped. Also, there was that persistent, always rumor that, they, well, he must have been drunk. Yeah, so there was, was the, that, that, like, Earl Van Dorn has the same rumor that he's drunk. The interesting thing about Rosecrans being promoted is Grant was quite happy about it because he said, I was delighted at the promotion of General Rosecrans to a separate command because I still believe that when independent of an immediate superior, aka myself, Grant, the qualities which at the time 
I credited him with possessing would show themselves. As a subordinate, I found that he would not do as I wished and had determined to relieve him from duty that very day. So Grant is very like, you can see he's pissed at these rumors about the drinking. And I mean, who wouldn't be right? What happened after Ayuko, whether it was Rosecrans, we're not 100% sure, but it, it most likely was telling the newspapers that Grant was drunk and Rosecrans is like, and I was fighting by myself. But Grant said of Corinth, the battle was recognized by me as being a decided victory, though not so complete as I'd hoped for, for nearly so complete as I now think that was within the easy grasp of the commanding officer at Corinth. So he's getting that last bit of shade in there, you know, which I mean, <laughs> I kind of just laughed when I read that because I'm like, holy shit, he is not happy about the drinking rumors, which again, who can blame him, right? And no. and just to say to our listeners, we're not like, we're not trying to shit all over Grant here and defend Rosecrans, but there is a definite, you know, there's a lot of background to this relationship they have that goes back to Ayuka, and you can see it carry through right to when Rosecrans leaves Chattanooga in 1863, in late 1863. Well, they were, they were definitely rivals. You know, there's a reason why Rosecrans went to that Cincinnati reporter and planted that story. Oh, I absolutely. Mean, he, I mean, it was it wasn't it wasn't always just Grant coming at Rosecrans. I mean, Rosecrans was exactly he does not he does not come over smelling rosy either no see what I just did right exactly so, they're they're both doing know. they're they, they are both doing the the mean girls thing with this um they're not doing either either of themselves or each other any favors with this but it's just interesting like all this it's not just battles that are happening it's these rivalries as well behind the scenes that are almost just as interesting that are playing into you know maybe how commands are going to change later in the civil war um but you can see that grant does have a bit of respect he does have the respect for rosecrans saying he possessed qualities that made him a good commander and grant i think much preferred him where he was being in charge of what will become the army of the cumberland which is eventually going to go on to stones river to and eventually to chickamauga as well it'll go on and on and on so so i think but again these people are people they're you know they're this they're in the heat of battle literally and figuratively so you can see how um with especially with the eyes of washington and halleck right look yeah. especially on grants because he already knew that he was already the doghouse from yeah. shiloh he already knew halleck was already in one a couple strikes on him yeah so of course he's going to be sensitive to, to rumors that maybe he put the army at risk by you know ignoring rosecrans and Ayuka and, and potentially getting them all destroyed so you can see how that would have gone and why the how dangerous that was for a rumor at the time for grant so you can see his anger you really really oh can. i can completely um, understand it especially what's happened what with what happened to him at shiloh and then you have the newspapers and the media rearing their ugly head again you know with probably rosecrans going to that news the reporter in Cincinnati and saying, oh, yeah, I, you know, I was on my own. And I think he might have been Grant might have been drunk again. You know, you can see why that, you know, that wound was still open from what Halleck had did to him um, post Shiloh, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question about it. But it, but an interesting story, you know, because certainly Second Corinth is one of those battles that doesn't really get much, much press. I think we, I think it, for the average civil person, you mentioned Corinth, you think of the siege. Right? Yeah, you, you think, think of Beauregard and all that. Beauregard yeah. and all those guys and driving them off. This is an important battle because the Union was able to get control of that rail line again, yeah. right? And they were able to really take control of those two vital railroad junctions. And what this really did was it helped open the doors towards the Citrus Vicksburg. It helped it helped take a lot of soldiers off the dance floor on the Confederate side. So it is all plays in part and parcel to the bigger things that lead to bigger battles in that theater. Without Second Corinth, if the Confederates would have, would have got back in there and held that, it's interesting how that might have played out for later battles. Yeah, would there have, have been a stone? Would troops. there have been a Stones River? 
you know, had Corinth yeah. been held by the Confederates. It's tough to say. You know, one all leads to the other. That's what's great about it. It's like a bunch of dominoes falling. But if one doesn't go the right way, it screws up the whole thing. So anyway, so what's next? So what's next? Uh, we are going to be staying in the Western Theater and we're going to be talking Perryville. So we are going to be where we started with Richmond, Kentucky a few weeks ago. We are going to be wrapping up that discussion of that particular campaign. And then the other thing I want to mention is we are doing a fundraiser with a homebrew history podcast with Joe and Bo over there. And if you haven't yet, check check out their podcast because it's pretty awesome. So how the the fundraiser works is just go on to Battle of Franklin Trust website and go to the donate page and they have a PayPal on there. And we have um, a really great gift basket that has been put together with lots of cool Civil War nerdy stuff in it. Thanks to Joe for putting that together. And for every $5 you donate, you get entered into a raffle to win that gift basket. But also more than that, you're going to be contributing contributing to battlefield preservation for battle of franklin trust as well so so that's pretty cool we will be having our next round table uh the third wednesday in october which will probably be a good time our last one was a great time too with trivia we won't be doing trivia this time just regular round table but you can come nerd out with us if you want so i think that's it for tonight so that was a great discussion about the battle of the second battle of corinth so thank you to you darren for bringing it as you always do well yeah just having part of the team you know how it is <laughs> Like I got a t-shirt now, some official. Twinsies. Yeah, same, same with you. <laughs> All right. So off we, off we go to Perryville, which I'm sure yep. we'll talk with old friend William Lytle again. He'll make his appearance he there will. as well. I'm sure we'll, we'll be mentioning him again. Um, but some good things coming down the road. By the time this drops, we'll have our book club with Kate. That's going to be fantastic. And we'll have another live. And we'll look forward to a fantastic, fantastic, hopefully good weekend. So Mary, any final words from you? Well, thank you as always for bringing it. And thanks to our listeners for supporting us for these last... 58 episodes it's been quite a journey and i can honestly say i've learned a lot along the way about the civil war and all that and just everybody stay safe and keep having fun and we'll see you on your live our live on saturday morning at 10 o'clock don't uh, make sure you donate don't forget homebrew history they're they're great boffs uh, yeah fundraisers so we know we know who's not kicking in money so we see you santa's <laughs> making a list so, it's only five dollars so every five dollars you donate you get entered into a raffle to to win a really great gift basket which has some Man, civil war breakfast club swag in it too oh so. i know it's got a great cause great cause. Yeah. all right so mary again the pleasure all yours and hope you have a great night and we look forward to talking to everyone on the other side and down the road so peace out to you see y'all later Adios. bye